This is the weekly Bull and Bear by WealthFest, a podcast for financial professionals. Each week, your hosts, Drew Dawkin and Grant Collins, will have an in-depth conversation about what's happening in the markets. Hello, everybody. Today is Tuesday, February 18th. Market today, Dow was down 165.89 points, or 0.56%, ending the day at 29,232. The S&P 500 was down 9.87 points, or 0.29%, ending the day at 33.70. Uh, VIX was up today, uh, 8.41%. And then the U.S. 10-year Treasury was unchanged at 1.559% yield. Uh, some of the numbers we've seen that we'll kind of get right into are consumer sentiments, uh, which rose in February, um, and it is now, you know, at a 15-year high. The Consumer Sentiment Survey climbed to 100.9 in February. Uh, last month was from was from uh, 99.8%. Of course, this is, you know, conducted by University of Michigan. And economists that had been surveyed by MarketWatch had expected a flat reading, but it definitely surpassed those. So, Grant, let's kind of get into, you know, consumer sentiment how bullish the consumer is and uh, how aggressive they feel their their prospects are. Definitely. Consumers seem to have a high level of optimism right now. When they were surveyed by the University of Michigan, they talked about improved incomes and wealth. Uh, the most talked about actually since 1960, so pretty significant there. Uh, could be from the stock market at record highs as well as continued wage growth. I think people are looking towards a strong labor market and then overall consumer sentiment rose. Uh, they're not really worried about the coronavirus or presidential race. So overall, people have a bit of a brighter view uh, for the near future. That said, one one finding was that consumers were not optimistic about buying durable goods. So new cars, new trucks, new appliances, they, they were a, a decreased view, not, not as optimistic as that as the overall uh, view. They also have, you know, a kind of a depressed, not depressed, but slightly lower um, reading on their own financial situation and the current health of the economy, uh, which inched down to 113.8. It's lower, but it's still close to a post-recession high. But they're very optimistic about the near future. Um, The gauge that asks about expectations for the next um, six months climbed 2.1 points, so that's at 92.6%. So then right now, you know, in terms of near-term optimism, that's the second highest level since, you know, 2007 to 2009, you know, the crisis. Right. And we also saw that, depending on your political affiliation, that Republicans felt very strong and positive about the economy, where Democrats are, are a little more gloomy. So, of course, with an election year, that's something that people look to as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean— We'll we'll see uh, coming in, and I guess independents were kind of you know somewhere in the middle, so it's to be expected. Um, your outlooks a lot of times kind of you know relies on your persuasion. Um, one thing though that is you know hard and fast and concrete is we have seen a record of four hundred one k millionaires that's hit a new high, uh, and you know fidelity came out and. You know, a lot of this has to do with, you know, good returns in the fourth quarter. I mean, if we look at the fourth quarter in uh, 2009, 
the average retirement account balance was $62,600 in a, in a 401k. And fourth quarter 2019, it was $112,300. So, you know, not quite, you know, more than double, right? It, so. It's fantastic overall that we're seeing uh, this much money in retirement accounts. We saw that there was twenty or two hundred and thirty-three hundred thousand um, millionaires who who or have millions in their four hundred one k accounts. We're seeing that IRAs millionaires jumped by fourteen percent, just above two hundred thousand uh, in two thousand nineteen. One of the what Fidelity found was that most of these people have been saving throughout a twenty-five to thirty-year career. So I think that as we discussed a couple podcasts ago about the Secure Act, this number will, will hopefully increase. Also, if we think about millennials being the first generation where four hundred one ks are usually offered and automatically enrolled, we I think that this number will continue to to increase uh, f- further down the line as retirement uh, is is really talked about and becoming more of a well-known subject across the country. Well, the new 401k millionaires have been very aggressive savers. Fidelity noted that they're saving up to 25% of their annual salary. You know, when we're looking at the fact that almost half the country doesn't have a 401k, and you know, many people are chronically underfunded, we've seen you know, these people willing to stash. You know, 25% is a huge number. Yep. It's, it's it's a it's a very very aggressive number. So. I also think to note is that a lot of the doubling in the account is is due to such a bull market of the last 10 years as well. Yeah, and savings across the board's gotten better. You know, overall, 33% of investors have seen their savings increase in 2019. Um, You know, two in five people have voluntarily upped their contributions, and a lot of people are benefiting from these automatic increases in contributions as companies become more generous, you know, with, with, with increased earnings in terms of matching and contributions. Right. And I do think that millennials are, are, are going to be the first generations where the automatic enrollment in 401ks is, is really going to take precedent. Yeah, I don't, I don't have these numbers in front of me, but I think you, when you're looking at, from what I remember, it's like when you're looking at boomers when they were our age, they accounted for about 21% of the nation's wealth. Millennials are sitting at a balmy 3%. So <laughs> there's a lot of ground to make up. Um, so, you know, maybe this is an increased trend, uh, hopefully, because uh, 3% is abysmal. I mean, a lot of people, you know, talking about millennials as, you know, the Tide Pod generation, but the oldest millennial is now, you know, 38 years old. So it's totally rocking the dad bod and yeah. uh you know it's it's not it's not little kids all the time anymore so we're growing up yeah <laughs> so you know with that though we should mention that you know credit card debts also uh that's also hit an all-time high uh, it's reached 930 billion um so recently it surpassed the 870 billion peak during the 2008 financial crisis uh, we've seen credit card delinquencies increase from 0.16% from the prior quarter, ending at 5.32%. And when you're looking at younger Americans, you know, between 18 to 29, they have about a 76% higher delinquency rate than anyone else. In the fourth quarter, we saw credit card balances increase by uh, $46 billion. Uh, that's a huge number, and also up $57 billion over uh, since 
over a quarter from uh, fourth quarter from 2018. Uh, one thing to know is that we're seeing that younger Americans are, are having the highest delinquency rate. Uh, so um, younger Americans between 18 and, and 29 have a 76% higher delinquency rate than, than anyone else. Uh, I, I think credit card debt is definitely something that we need to talk about moving forward. Uh, it it that, That's a drastically high number and, and could be uh, drastic if we think about people not uh, reaching out for uh Mortgages and, and loans and having such a low credit score due to high delinquency rates could could impact us moving forward. Yeah, and it, it drops by age. I mean, it's to be expected. 18 to 29, you have a 9.36% delinquency rate. Kind of look at 40 to 49, that's a 5.64%. And then when you're looking at, you know, individuals 70 years and older, that's 4.26%. So, you know, delinquency goes down by age, but... To somewhat be expected. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, when we're looking at, um, let's kind of talk about, you know, we've, we've mentioned, you know, the credit cards, we've mentioned 401ks, uh, kind of in the broader stock market, when we're looking at Europe, their earnings recession uh, might be kind of coming to an end. Uh, you know, last year was, you know, not not great in continental Europe. I mean, the stocks Europe 600 um, had three consecutive quarters of falling earnings that lasted from July to September. Uh, they declined by 4.3% year on year. A lot of this is because, you know, their technology um, companies were, were fairly weak. Uh, but, you know, profits have recently been estimated to have shot up by uh, 23%. Um, ASML, which is a Dutch company, just had a 44%. Jump in earnings. Uh, a lot of people are looking to Europe for some specialized chip making equipment. So it seems like their tech sector, at least, is kind of getting above water. It seems like it's pulling them out of the recession, really, because if we look at utilities and energy, they're, they're really dragging, look pretty poor over the same time period. Uh, it's interesting that the technology companies there are. Uh, are still not like they are in the United States, right? If we think about Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, Facebook, the the big the big tech companies here in, in the United States, they're worth the same value as Euro's top forty stocks. So I mean that that's significantly lower market cap over there in Europe. Uh, and I think that if you're looking towards tech and you're going to invest in tech, I think the majority of you are, are, are still going to look at Silicon Valley as as the place to go. Yeah, I mean tech tech. Tech represents a third of the S and P five hundred, but only six percent of the Euro stock six hundred. So, a lot to catch up. Um, it's good that it's driving it out of the recession, though, because I mean, if we think about utilities and energy dragging it down, they, they need something to get them out of the recession. Right. I mean, it says something to be that they might be slightly more diversified in terms of weight than we are right now, just in terms of pure earnings. So that's, that's a good that's point. Plus, plot positive or a, or a minus. But overall, when we're looking at a lot of the new analysts coming into uh, 2020, you know, the um, stock market's definitely, the U.S. stock market's definitely outpaced the rest of the world. And, um, you know, there's something to be said that, you know, we can remain dominant coming into this year um, to be, you know, as well. U.S. companies managed to increase earnings since the financial crisis and companies in emerging markets and even really the rest of the developing world haven't. Uh, we saw Goldman Sachs is, is still very bullish, as always, but they, they still think that people 
have uh, should be invested in stocks and that there's room to grow. It was it was interesting that that same report from Goldman was talking how the coronavirus outbreak only serves to to show the American dominance and that we have such a resilient stock market that the coronavirus really will just show how resilient it, it is. So that was interesting to note. Yeah, even in 2000, I mean, you know, the economy has shelter, but then also, you know, our treasury provide shelter. And even in 2011, when we were downgraded for the first time in, in many, many years, people were still flocking to U.S. Treasuries. Well, where, yeah, it's a great point. Where are you going to go? We saw that the sovereign debt crisis in the Eurozone and then China mismanaged their, their currency devaluations in 2015, 2016. Now, not to mention the slow of ec- economic growth with the coronavirus. Uh, but even though U.S. stocks are expensive right now, there I don't think they're technically in, in a bubble compared to historical norms. They, they may look expensive, but they're not expensive as they were right before the dot-com bubble. So overall, I, I think we're continuing to see a U.S. dominant market because there's really nowhere else to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's parallels to the 1990s, right? When baby boomers, you know, the older ones were in their 50s. They're, you know, pouring money out of mutual funds, saving for retirement, um, you know, people were worried about the, the long-term, you know, inflows uh, to equity mutual funds. But, I mean, at the end of the day, uh, the course corrected itself. And if we think about mean reversion, where over time we'll revert back to the mean because currently we're, we're highly overvalued. Uh, one thing is if you're betting on that reversion, it, it could take a lot longer than you think it, and you could lose gains and, and money betting on the short side. So I, I, I just think that uh, to be invested in equities right now is probably your best bet. Yep. I mean, and, and the, you know, mean reversions can take a while to happen, um, you know, ultimately. And, and if we are in a, you know, a manufacturing you know, if our manufacturing is being revitalized, that's just even more wind into our sales. So um, that kind of gets into, I mean, overall, you know, we've brought this up, but, you know, the biggest real fundamental risk seems to be, you know, a lack of inflation, um, apart from black swan events like the coronavirus. And, and we're really looking at, you know, secular stagnation, um, which is, you know, when we're look, there's there's been some new recent analysis uh, from the American Economic Association, um, and and in a working white paper, you know, published by the Bank of England, that's looking at, uh, you know, interest rates, and in fact, you know, secular stagnation is a very uh, very old trend, and you know, it, it's covered, you know, up to 78% of the advanced economy's GDP going back to the early 14th century. So there are large areas where, you know, you see sluggish growth and, and low interest rates. Definitely. It, it's interesting how, how Larry Summers from Harvard always says that, you know, falling interest rates on rates of investments or on returns of investment and economic growth have really been falling in the American economy since the 1970s. And overall, uh, since the 15th century, that where interest rates were around 10 percent have steadily been falling by point uh, by point four percent or 2.4 percent into uh, 2018. So overall, it's interesting to see how 
the decreasing interest rate ha- affects that stagnation. Right, which it kind of also contradicts, you know, Thomas Piketty, the French economist, comes out and, you know, his book Capital in the 21st Century, which is now one of the most premier economic books um, in recent history, at least. But, you know, he claimed that, you know, there's really no forces acting against a steady concentration of wealth. You know, if, uh, you know, interest rates and then returns on capital have been falling, you know, for centuries, but but there indeed might be such, you know, you know, powerful force. Let's kind of get into Tesla. Uh, you know, we, we talked about it. They're having a secondary common stock offering um, at seven, uh, $767 a share. Um, they're hoping to raise, you know, more than $2 billion. And they'll be selling, um, you know, 2.65 million shares at this, this price. So let's let's look at what, what Tesla's trying to do and, and how their stock has been returning recently. Well, recently it's been going straight up, uh, skyrocketing. Shares so far this year are up 92% as of last week. Uh, just today, I believe they were up a little over 7%. Uh, the, the interesting part is Elon Musk. Elon Musk on the last earnings call said that uh, – Due to the company's expected generation of cash and growth, they don't need to raise extra money. And now today we we see Tesla saying they're going to strengthen their balance sheet. And just for overall general corporate purposes is why they're they're raising the money. So uh, Elon Musk goes back and forth on his comments. So you never really know exactly where he's going with Tesla. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, ultimately they'd be using any proceeds to kind of strengthen their balance sheets which is which can be crazy right tesla can have crazy balance sheets <laughs> well uh, it, it also as we, we've talked about it before is is that the, the last two quarters were the first quarters they raised a profit so i'm sure that their balance sheet does need some help because overall as, as an annual basis i do believe 2019 was not a, a fully positive year for them right right and i mean you, you a lot of it's, you know, fundamentals have changed, but market sentiment regarding Tesla has also changed. Well, just a couple of weeks ago, it was the most shorted stock on, on Wall Street with, I believe, about 20% of the shares being shorted. Uh, so as as we're seeing, they're, they're, the short sellers are really starting to get squeezed there. Uh, it It is extremely high valuation and it is very popular stock. We're seeing Elon Musk is going to buy another $10 million worth of shares. And then the Oracle, old Oracle CEO, Larry Ellison, is going to purchase a, a million dollars in the offering. So I think with big names and investors like that, you're going to continue to have uh, have some wins in your sales. I mean, one issue they're coming across, like a lot of manufacturing companies right now, when we're talking about you know supply lines due to the coronaviruses, they had to, you know, shut down um, briefly its gigafactory in Shanghai. And, you know, you might see some more of that. But but by and large, it's, you know, Tesla's doing very, very well. Also, uh, yeah, I, I think that the China, the China supply chain is going to weigh on Tesla. But we just saw Apple come out and revise that their one manufacturing is, is going to slow. And then two, that 
their their overall sales in, in China, iPhone sales are going to decrease. And uh, we saw Walmart today say that the coronavirus isn't going to affect their earnings. But I think we're we're going to see other companies come out and say that uh, the Q1 and maybe even Q2 is going to be affected by the coronavirus, which will impact overall global growth, which we've talked about before. And uh, Tesla could be affected by that as well. What are you looking at most this next coming week? Following the coronavirus, I, I think we've been talking about it a lot, but it's still on the on the forefront of everyone's mind. Uh, and then uh, we got a couple more primaries coming up here, uh, and then Super Tuesday in, in a couple weeks. So definitely to see see how that goes. Uh, one thing outside of economics, I'll be looking at is to see what happens with. Uh, our attorney general, after we saw over a thousand federal prosecutors resign, um, to see see what happens there with the Roger Stone case. So that's definitely something I'll be looking at. Yeah. What about you? Yeah. No, I'm looking at Nevada's going to be on this Saturday, um, and it's been kind of a wild one. Uh, so I'm, this was the one Biden was to hope to clinch as his first decisive victory, but the polls definitely seem to indicate that Bernie could run away with this thing. Um, I don't know if you were watching today, but Bernie had a rally. I think it was in Carson City. It was somewhere in Nevada where uh, you know, he was um, – there's protesters against, you know, his support of the dairy industry. And, you know, some individuals got topless and poured fake blood on all of themselves. <laughs> and, you know, they wouldn't burn – he said something to the line. It was like, you know, Nevada always offers entertainment. <laughs> so, uh, so, But, you know, Nevada's definitely – it's going to be a big one because it's way more demographically uh, diverse in a lot of ways than New Hampshire and um, Iowa. It's also a caucus, but, you know, you have a much more uh, dynamic uh, racial breakdown, but also in terms of an economic breakdown. And it's just a fundamentally more dynamic state and more in line with the Democratic Party. So whoever wins this one, I think— there's going to be a lot of PR on, okay, they're winning in a state that looks more representative of what the Democratic Party is than, than Iowa and New Hampshire. Makes good sense. And with that, um, thank you all for listening. Please, you know, if you haven't subscribed, uh, do so. Feel free to like or share, and we're out. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the hosts and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of WealthFest. The mere appearance of content on the site does not constitute an endorsement by WealthFest. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. WealthFest does not make any representation or warranties with respect to accuracy, applicability, fitness, or completeness of the content. WealthFest does not warrant the performance, effectiveness, or applicability of any sites listed or linked in any of the content. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning.